Okay, Ethan, thanks for joining me on Real Vision. Thanks for having me, Eric. Maybe for the audience that isn't familiar with your background, you could do a little bit of an intro into, you know, how you got into the space and a bit of your background. I know you come from a pretty diverse background compared to some other people. You weren't, uh, you're not from finance. So take it away. <laughs> I think a lot of people, well, maybe on, on Real Vision, a lot of people are finance, but in, uh, in the cryptocurrency world, there's, I think, a lot of diversity and background. So my, uh, my pedigree, I guess, is in, in biophysics. That's what I studied in, in university. Um, specifically, I was interested in the problem of the origin of life and how it is in a universe that's allegedly always running down, according to the second law of thermodynamics, that we have you know, organisms and ecosystems and these phenomenal beings that run themselves up, so to speak, that you know, this sort of incredible phenomenon of emergence. Um, and, and this was really what I was studying and trying to understand and slowly starting to apply it to, you know, the political realm, the economic realm as well, um, as I was learning about, you know, the nature of, of economics and, and the financial system and came across Bitcoin. And it sort of dawned on me that, you know, this was back in 2013, that what we were seeing with Bitcoin was the same phenomenon I was studying in the biophysical medium, but happening in the digital medium, the sort of origin of life, right? There's these emergent self, you know, coordinating, uh, sustainable organisms essentially and so that that really struck me that you know if the the internet was this sort of revolution in biological communication that bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were this revolution in coordination um and that that was really powerful for me and sort of i sort of went pretty much all in to the cryptocurrency world at that point i was doing a master's degree or I just started a master's degree that was supposed to be in machine learning uh, but I spoke to my my professor and I was like, look, either I'm not going to do a master's degree at all or it's going to be on, uh, you know, on cryptocurrencies or blockchains. And he was like, you know, as long as it counts as computer engineering, uh, you're good with me. So I was, I was fortunate to have a very, very flexible and, and supportive um, advisor. And so I ended up doing my thesis on on Tendermint, which was, you know, the, the project I had I had co-founded with, with Jay Kwan at the time. Um, the thesis was called Tendermint Byzantine Fault Tolerance in the Age of Blockchains and sort of really dove into the contextualizing what was happening in the blockchain space and proof of stake and so on in the sort of longer tradition um, of the academic study of consensus protocols. Um, yeah, that, that, that's how I got started. And then we could talk about Cosmos and so on. Yeah, Sounds good. And for those that maybe aren't as familiar, uh, Tendermint is the uh, the consensus engine that powers uh, Cosmos and as well now a bunch of other chains um, in in the cryptocurrency space. Maybe let's uh, step back a bit. Like, what um, at what point did you start to get into the cryptocurrency space? Like, you you mentioned around 2013. Like, what was that trigger? I had started to be turned on a little bit to you know the problems in the financial system and, and sort of most of my life. I imagined after I got over the fact that I wasn't going to be in the NBA, you know, probably when I was like 14 or something, as all as all young boys do, I guess. Um, I was like, okay, I'll be a professor, right? I'll you know, hang out in the ivory tower and whatever. And I guess sometime in 2011 or 2011, uh, 2012 era, I started learning about the financial system and the sort of structure of the economy and started listening to podcasts and gold bugs and, you know, learning a little about the sort of Austrian view and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, bought my first bars of silver and drained my bank accounts and, you know, just a young, irresponsible 20 year old and pretty much had become disenchanted as, uh, you know, as people do when they start learning about these things. Uh, and so in early 2013, you know, I'd heard about Bitcoin in 2012, I think, but I didn't really understand it. I went to the Wikipedia page. There were like too many things I didn't get. So I just sort of moved on. And then 2013, it came up again. And so I dug in and spent time actually trying to understand, okay, what is this Merkle tree thing? What is this, you know, cryptographic signature thing? 
Um, and, and it started to click. And it was really, I think, um, the Cyprus bail-in crisis in 2013, where there was, you know, the sort of in the midst of the, the Eurozone crises of, of that time, where, um, you know, the, the government bailed in um, the banks by giving, you know, deposits, depositors a haircut. And that was sort of, I think, uh, uh, illuminating for a lot of people, not just me, but for a lot of people, that was the yeah. first time they really sort of were like, oh, man, you know, the banks aren't safe. Let's uh, we need a, a different sort of safe asset, something that's digitally native. And, and that was Bitcoin. And that was the first time I actually, you know, tried to purchase a Bitcoin. And I was I had been trying for a few weeks and I was pretty annoyed that I couldn't purchase the new Internet money over the Internet. Uh, and I had to actually like find a human being in Toronto and like go into his shop and give him cash. And so that was kind of frustrating. It's a, it's a little bit better today, but, you know, honestly, not by much. So, yeah, yeah that was sort of how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, it was a little bit later, but it was kind of, uh, you know, seeing similar things. I think like a lot of people in the space, there's a bunch of events that kind of added up yeah. to then going like, huh, there's something a little bit different here. There may be a different way of doing things compared to what we grew up with. Take me to, you know, how did you come up with Tendermint and how you kind of got into Cosmos? Like, how did you make that switch or what was the what was the trigger in your mind where like, I'm going to make a new consensus mechanism. Sure. So um, I can't take credit for inventing Tendermint. So that, that was, right. uh, that was my partner, Jay Kwan. Um, and so that was in, that was in 2014. So, you know, by early 2014, we had all seen the sort of the Ethereum white paper being in Toronto, you know, there, there was a pretty heavy Bitcoin meetup scene and, and Vitalik was there and a lot of the early Ethereum people. And it sort of became, you know, something of an Ethereum meetup and, and, and so we were going there, you know, every week or, or every couple of weeks and, you know, uh, getting Vitalik to teach us about like Merkle trees and, you know, how, however, all, all this stuff worked. Um, but that was also around the time that people were starting to think about new models of um, of proof of stake, essentially, right? Ways to deal with the problems of proof of work. And there were already a few sort of proof of stake, existing proof of stake um, competitors like uh, like like PP coin or, you know, NXT, I think already existed around that time. Um, but the problems with them was that they, 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 you know, as people would say in proof of stake, you have nothing at stake, um, right. which was sort of this, you know, ironic, uh, quip that people would throw around. And so early that year, Vitalik had come up with this idea of, uh, what he called slasher at the time where to participate in a proof of stake consensus protocol, um, you would have to actually make some deposit of your stake and, and lock it up so that there would be something at stake. And if you were later found to misbehave or try to cause a fork, you would lose that, that deposit. And that was very inspiring for a lot of people. And it was around that time that it was like, okay, Ethereum is going to ultimately move to proof of stake. Of course, we're, you know, seven years later and we're not quite there yet, but, you know, there, there's been a lot of progress. But anyway, um, I think it was around June that, that Jay Kwan came up with uh, with the Tendermint protocol, and he was sort of, you know, going through older academic literature on Byzantine fault tolerance and consensus protocols and and found some stuff that he could understand and could basically modernize into the blockchain context. And, you know, that he felt he could use um, for also for public cryptocurrencies and so on. And so, um, you know, I had heard him on a podcast talking about Tendermint, this new consensus without mining approach. Uh, and I was pretty taken with that. And, and sort of later in 2014, I was working for a company now known as Monax, then they were called Eris. They were basically the first company to try to commercialize the Ethereum technology, to bring the Ethereum virtual machine and so on to, to enterprises. And, and we knew that in order to do that, we needed a better consensus algorithm. We couldn't use the you know, Nakamoto consensus and the proof of work and so on. So we were looking for an alternative. And so when we came across Tendermint, we were like, oh, this is maybe, this. not only could this work because it uses you know, classic academic consensus 
protocols that, that could work in enterprise, but it could also work for the future of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchains more generally. And so that sort of kicked off my collaboration with Jay. And, he's, and so I was sort of like his you know first follower, so to speak. And we sort of co-founded the project moving forward from there um, together. And by 2016, after I'd published my um, my master's thesis on Tendermint, we were looking to actually now sort of move away from the enterprise model and bring uh, this consensus protocol to life in the public realm, right? Going back to the roots of sort of public uh, cryptocurrency networks um, and solving some of the outstanding problems in the existing crypto, uh, in the existing cryptocurrency network, speed, scalability, security, flexibility, and so on. And so that led us to come up with, with this model for Cosmos, which was the idea that, you know, in the future, there's going to be many, many blockchains thousands, if not millions of them, they can't use proof of work, obviously, because it's too destructive and, and energy intensive. So we need a, you know, a, a friendly, sustainable alternative. And that is the model of Tendermint and proof of stake. And we want each community and, and you know, each, each group of individuals or, or whoever wants to start such a chain to have sort of ownership over their blockchain sovereignty, as we call it, and yet still have all the different chains be able to interoperate with each other. And so, you know, from that sort of desire and motivation emerged the Cosmos vision and values of sovereignty and interoperability of a world of millions of chains where each community is sort of sovereign in their own right and yet interoperable with all the others. Um, and that sort of birthed the Cosmos project in the summer of 2016. And, you know, five years later, we're starting to actually realize that vision with now, you know, over $100 billion, I think, worth of market cap on different Cosmos-based blockchains and our inner blockchain communication protocol, IBC, is now live. So those those chains can start to communicate with each other. And, you know, there's a lot more, um, lot more coming. Yeah, I think that was a major, major, major step. Thanks for the, the great overview of background. It's fascinating, like, the transition as well as, you know, I think when we met originally, this was about a year and a bit ago when we met, um, I was really impressed with the engineering thought that went into Cosmos, like really, because I think one of the challenges that anybody who's worked in Ethereum and Bitcoin is that those projects are pretty monolithic, like big in the sense that the code base is reasonably big. It does a lot of things all in one single code base. And usually the trend in software engineering has been to kind of componentize things and break things up into their different yeah. architecture layers. And yeah. I remember when you were presenting Cosmos um, at the Creative Destruction Lab in Toronto, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, these guys have like basically done what we said needs to be done internally, where they've decoupled yeah. the consensus layer from you know some of the networking pieces to some of the um, the actual smart contract layer and and the interoperability pieces and I think you know congrats recently on the IBC launch I think that was a big one not only for the cosmos ecosystem but for the entire space yeah. for people to start to see now over the next six to 12 months how these networks can kind of interoperate because I think what we're seeing, on the Ethereum ecosystem as people are trying to bridge to other chains and doing so successfully. And I think you guys are involved in some of that, that work as well, but it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of common underlying stack of technology, whether it's the consensus or the APIs themselves, if that really starts to expand all these networks quite quickly, I think that's my thesis is that, you know, right now what happened is Bitcoin was kind of this base 
money layer, essentially, or store of value layer that a bunch of chains kind of built on and that seeded a bunch of these networks. But then Ethereum came along and made things more programmable. So everybody jumped to that. And then very quickly, I think, you know, Ethereum kind of snowballed almost a little bit quicker than I think everybody anticipated in terms of the actual software engineering structure like the software teams i think are working quite hard on that but the challenge is that it's still pretty clunky to work with you know <laughs> like anybody who's yeah. actually yeah. doing dev with ethereum is like you know it's still pretty clunky compared to it feels like not 1990s kind of a little bit or like early web and i think with these next layers what we're starting to see is because of that decoupling you know people are built on erc20s because it's become this common uh, spec for issuing a token, yeah. which has worked out really well. But I think what you guys have done is like, to me, separated these different layers and made it so that people can kind of mix and match even the underlying core pieces in order to build their own networks and still have that underlying tech so that they can all talk to each other. Right. And I think that's a really key piece because that's not really something you can do easily within the e Ethereum ecosystem. Like it's still not super easy to have even two Ethereum chains necessarily interoperate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a big part of our motivation, it's funny, it, it, we saw this in 2016 and it's still kind of the case today, even though it's starting to change was that the, you know, the stack for building blockchain applications was very monolithic at the time, you know, you had a limited set of options. It was take the Bitcoin code base and fork it, right? It wasn't modular at all. The whole thing is sort of compounded together. And, you know, Bitcoin core developers over the years have done a lot of work to improve this, but still largely the same, the same situation, right? If you want, you basically have to fork it, right? And so Ethereum came along and said, okay, instead of that, let's build an entire virtual machine environment so people can build smart contracts that will run on top of our virtual machine. But the virtual machine design, you know, it was a, it was a toy. It never really should have gotten out in some regard, right? It's not a safe design. There, there's a lot of quirks and a lot of flaws. And everyone knows this. This isn't like a secret or, you know, some kind of attack on Ethereum. Like it's well understood that there are problems with the Ethereum virtual machine and, and with Solidity and so on. Uh, and, and you're relatively confined and worse, um, not only you're confined to that development environment, which is still quite immature, even though it's the most advanced in sort of the, you know, smart contract world, you're stuck as an application developer, you have no sovereignty, right? You're, you're you're sort of beholden to the whim of the larger Ethereum network, right? And and there's good and bads. On the one hand, the security is sort of provided for you, right? You don't have to worry about coming up with your own security for the network. The sort of the Ethereum miners take care of that for you, but you know they can make changes, and and if the Ethereum uh, network upgrades uh, or if the gas prices get too high, it could, it could completely you know, mess up your own, the economics of your own application, right? And so it's very similar to like, you know, a city state 2000 years ago being taken over by the Macedonian empire, right? Where it's like, okay, now you don't have to worry about coming up with your own army and defending yourselves, um, but you do have to pay taxes to Alexander the Great or, you know, whatever. And so there's sort of that, that loss of sovereignty. And so, you know, the, the, with the cosmos, the cosmos idea was essentially to, to solve both of these things, to restore sovereignty by, you know, through this model of application specific chains. So rather than like the notion of a world computer that would handle all of the world's computing and you just have to write your contract and deploy it and forget about it. You know, the model here is you actually build an entire, the entire blockchain serves your own application, right? And that way it's not beholden to some larger group of miners or someone that don't care about your application. It's specifically designed for your application and, and the validators and the community that sort of support it and run it are actually there for the particular application that's running on top of it, right? So you get that sovereignty, but you also get a development environment that that is 
mature in the sense that we didn't invent a new programming language. We didn't come up with some new virtual machine. We said, you know, take an existing programming language like Golang, but you can also use others. Uh, we built a framework so that you can actually build applications, you know, batteries included, but you can, you can plug in at whatever level you'd like. So if you want maximum flexibility, you can, you can do whatever you want, you know, add whatever level of concurrency or cryptography primitives, the sort of anything you can program in Go is accessible in a Cosmos-based blockchain. Or you can take the batteries included approach and sort of just write a little module and inherit everything else, the proof of stake, the governance, the cryptography, whatever, from the sort of larger Cosmos SDK framework in Go. And so that that has really resonated with people. And one, one analogy we like to use is sort of, you know, you can imagine Bitcoin is like a very early stage computer. It takes up a whole room. It doesn't have much functionality. Not that many people can use it, right? And Ethereum is like, oh, you know, moving to this like mainframe timeshare model where lots of people can use it, but they all have to log into the same mainframe. It still takes up a whole room. It's kind of in one place. And there's this, you know, this idea that, oh, one mainframe will, ca will carry all of the world's computing, right? Obviously that's, that's ridiculous. And, and that's not what happened. What happened is we got, you know, highly commodified and decentralized computing devices. Now everyone has their own, you know, microprocessor in, in their, on their, on their desk, in their pocket and so on. Um, they have sovereignty over those devices. They can, you know, do what they like with them, install whatever programs they want, of course, within limits, but, um, and then they connect them to each other using standard interoperability protocols like TCP, like the internet protocol and so on. And so that's really the model of Cosmos to be this kind of internet of blockchain that enables many different blockchains to exist, you know, millions of them, just like we have billions of, of, um, computing machines, and then to connect them with standard protocols like TCP. In our case, we call it IBC, the Interblockchain Communication Protocol. But there are a lot of analogs between the way IBC works and the way TCP works in terms of the layers, in terms of the you know the the guarantees you get, the security model, and the the ability to build applications on top. And sort of that's where we that's the you know the the approach that Cosmos took to resolving these issues around sovereignty and the development environment and so on. Yeah, I think it's super super interesting. Like the approach that you guys have taken has been. I'm really quite enamored almost like I th it's quite clever. I think the way that you guys have been thinking about it, and it took me a little bit, maybe because I'm a little bit behind you or a little stupider, <laughs> but it, it took me a bit to kind of wrap my head around how that might start to work and how some of these networks start to scale out. But I think we're, we are seeing that emerge that, yeah. you know, regardless of whether it's Ethereum and even some of the layer two stuff that's happening or whether it's uh, different layer one chains. So, uh, we're seeing basically in order for things to scale out, you do need to have a bunch of sub networks, so to speak. And I, I agree with you. I remember we we're talking about this, that uh, I'm with you and that we're going to see a bunch of purpose built interoperable chains. And we're starting to see that, I think, emerge now, even with, you know, Binance Smart Chain and some of these yeah. different attempts at creating things that are purpose built. I know there's stuff happening in the Cosmos ecosystem like Terra's blockchain around uh, payments and some of the money flows, maybe to simplify a bunch of the stuff that we talked about for people who aren't developers. I think th the way that we look, that I look at the Cosmos ecosystem and the, the stuff that you guys have built within Cosmos is it's really a toolkit for anybody to build their own blockchain networks. But because you're using the same common APIs, other chains that are built with that same toolkit can easily interoperate. That's right. right. And that's how you can get that scaling as well as the ability to control, um, you know, to build things that are application specific and that work really well and have core primitives built into the network that work well for the application you're trying to use it for, whether that's 
lending or payments or money market or um, e voting and governance or uh, all sorts of different applications. So I think it's, that's the way that I've kind of looked at it. Maybe, um, maybe you can go into a little bit, we didn't touch on, you know, you were involved in Cosmos before, um, you were helping set it up and work it. Now you're working at informal systems. Maybe you can talk about what you guys are doing at informal and a bit of the transition. And then I'd like to hear about some of the research you guys have been doing lately. Sure. So um, Cosmos has a, a pretty complex web of organizations that are involved. So the organizational structure is, is itself pretty decentralized and you know, reflects the sort of cosmos values of sovereignty and interoperability. We have a bunch of like sovereign ind independent entities that are all kind of interoperating with each other. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the sort of human collaboration is, al is always, you know, the hardest part of all of this. And you know, we like to think all our problems are technical, but they're social political um, and at some level economic. But anyway, so there are a number of cosmos entities that, that I've been involved with and, and I'm still involved with. There's the nonprofit, the Interchain Foundation in Switzerland, um, which I'm uh, on the foundation council, essentially a board member of, which funds a lot of the development. There's also the, the Tenement Inc. company in the U.S. that I helped co-found and, and build up. I was the CTO there for a while. Um, there have been some changes there over the last couple of years, but they're still doing a lot of um, development, design, product work, and especially these days on, on the decentralized exchange that, that, that's about to launch on Cosmos, hopefully in around a month or so. Um, sometime last year, so I had gone from the Tenement Inc. to the Interchain Foundation to build up the sort of nonprofit capacity, the grants program, stuff like that. Um, we built up a research team um, and we decided to spin out uh, early last year into a new company um, to explore a number of avenues. We wanted to A, uh, explore and experiment with cooperative ownership models. So the, the new company in formal systems, which I'm the CEO of, is structured as a cooperative. So it's effectively, you know, one person, one vote system. We think that's sort of, you know, the right model for technology companies moving forward for, for um, you know, many reasons, but we're also focusing on a number of, um, you know, technology objectives. So we're still sort of core developers of the Cosmos ecosystem. We do a lot of protocol design. Uh, we're building some core components for IBC, but we're building out uh, in Rust to sort of expand the ecosystem uh, into the Rust uh, community and, uh, you know, offer new libraries and, and, and new tools that leverage sort of Rust performance and, and, and safety guarantees. But we also do a lot of um, formal verification work, which is to say, work to guarantee the, the quality and correctness of software using advances over the last few decades in, in mathematics and in, in computer science um, to actually prove that the software you're building is correct or, or does what you think it should, right? And so, um, so we've been building, we use TLA plus a lot, which is a, a, formal, uh, a formal language for modeling systems and, and verifying certain properties of them. And, and we're working on building connections between these sort of formal models and the actual software. For instance, things like model-based testing, which is an approach we're, we're pursuing now where you can write very simple, very short tests uh, that are only a few lines of TLA plus that would capture very complex scenarios that might be hundreds of lines of code to actually write you know, in the native programming language. We can write them in you know, 10, 20 lines in TLA plus and then still generate the test to run against real implementation. So that's been really exciting. We're starting to see some results for that. And, um, we're also running a, a validator on the Cosmos Hub network and a number of other Cosmos networks that's called the Cephalopod Equipment Corporation. Um, so if you're interested in, in you know, participating in any of these networks or, or delegating to any um, particularly active validators, we're pretty active as, as the, Cephalopod, um, the Cephalopod validator. So yeah, we sort of have a you know, vertically integrated stack from the actual operating the software to developing it in Rust to formally verifying it to 
you know, the protocol design work. So um, yeah, you can check this out in formal dot systems. Yeah. Interesting. So you guys are still, you're still heavily involved in the cosmos ecosystem, but what's yeah. obviously been happening is that it's decentralizing over time, right? That's you're right, having yeah. more and more uh, parties or entities get involved in various capacities. That's right. Yeah. Very cool. So what um, I know some of the stuff that we talked about before previously off camera, as well as, you know, you hinted at here thinking about, you know, the vision for Cosmos, I think was to create this toolkit of so that people can build interoperable networks. And as you mentioned, can have sovereignty. I know one of the things that we've talked about before is this idea of community currency or, you know, bringing things back to more of a localized economies that are interoperable. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you see that kind of playing out? Like, I mean, maybe you can expand on that thought because I know you've thought about this a ton. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I sort of see, uh, you know, a historical trajectory or progression over history of going from, um, you know, you could say initially as city states and small villages towards these very large empires, uh, then towards nation states. And, and, you know, the question is sort of what's coming next. And at some level, that's a, that's a story. If you're thinking about from empires to nation states to what's next, at least of, you know, the struggle between um, sovereignty and, and sort of um, subservience, right. Or subsidiary. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the problem is that with these empires and, and even now with the nation states, the political body is kind of too large to sufficiently represent its constituency, right? And the, the sort of on the ground society is so complex and, and things are moving at, at such an accelerating rate that it's very difficult for the institutions of a you know federal government to actually adequately represent the needs and desires and values, especially of um, of its citizenry. And, and we see that in the sort of you know rampant polarity in modern political discussions, right? That, that arguably, um, you know, I'm sure there, there, there's potentially many reasons for this, but arguably it's because the level of government is actually too big to handle. Um, the problems here, right? And so in the same way that the empires sort of broke down into these nation states where the, you know, at a smaller level, people were like, well, you know, we share a common set of values, maybe a common language, a common geographical region. We want to exert our own sovereignty rather than being ruled by this, you know, continent level empire say, you know, we are the nation of France or, you know, the nation of the United States of America and so on. I can foresee, especially now, with more than half the population living in cities, a sort of similar thing happening at the more municipal level, right? In, in many ways, municipalities today are sort of creatures of the of the state. They don't really have any sovereignty in their own right. They're, you know, um, puppets, say, of, of, of the province or, or of the state they're in. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're maybe on the verge of, of a kind of um, revolution, let's say, hopefully it won't be, you know, bloody or, or, or violent, where you know, we'll see municip municipalities gain a greater amount um, of sovereignty. And with that, will potentially additionally be some level of monetary sovereignty and, and a sort of proliferation of, of currencies, you know, maybe one, one for each city. And people hear that and they think, oh, that's absurd. Like, we can't possibly have that many currencies. How will we manage it? It's going to be complex. Like, floating exchange rates for countries are, are hard enough as it is, um, you know, and, and all of that's probably true. But, you know, I would say a couple of things. One is that historically, um, there were all, always uh, many currencies, right? It was, it was sort of common in, in the past for thousands of years for people to have to deal with, you know, um, local currencies that were issued by some local kingdom or whatever, but also more global currencies for the empires that they were under. And, you know, and yes, it was kind of messy and you need currency exchangers and, and so on. 
but it also better reflects the diversity of, of the world and trying to sort of denominate everything in a single global currency, I think is a, is a big mistake and, and the source of a lot of our problems because it's sort of too low dimensional to adequately reflect people's actual values, right? And hence we end up chronically undervaluing the things that actually keep our, our society alive. And this is sort of, you know, best demonstrated in the way that, you know, in the sort of uh, the issues with essential workers that the, the pandemic has brought out that the people we claim are the actual essential workers are, for our society are somehow, you know, paid the least. So obviously there's something fundamentally wrong in the way we, in, in the way we value things in society. And, you know, to my mind, a, a significant, um, you know, one major reason for that is because we've tried to use only a single currency that's issued by, you know, a single nation state to capture all of the world's, you know, uh, to denominate all of the world's value. And I think, I think that's a big problem. So the, the blockchain space has, um, you know, developed and evolved a number of new primitives in, in the uh, decentralized finance world, things like bonding curves and automated market makers that can actually do a lot to enable, um, you know, to reduce the barriers and the frictions to having a proliferation of currencies, right? And, and to make it a lot easier to move between them if there are many. So I sort of see us leveraging those kinds of technologies to actually be able to move into a world where we could have, you know, a currency per city or, or something like that. And I can't pretend to know ex exactly what this is going to look like, but it does seem like our sustainability as, as a species, as a society, as a civilization really is going to depend on greater levels of self-sufficiency and sort of localism and more local cooperative, stronger um, you know, economies rather than the kind of globalized, you know, let's, we can depend completely on this sort of global, uh, you know, foreign supply chain. Uh, COVID, I think, really helped illuminate why that's a problem, those sorts of dependencies. And a lot of, you know, countries are now looking at, oh, we better have, uh, better make sure we have some local supply chains. And, and, and that's one thing that's sort of getting the ball moving on this, this, but I think there are larger trends as well that are just going to keep pushing for more, more local sovereignty and, and more self-sufficiency. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of global cooperation, right? I think that there is a world where we can sort of have both and constantly be negotiating, you know, both local sustainability, but also global cooperation. And the proliferation of municipal currencies is going to play a role in that because I don't really see them all as fully independent, but as part of, you know, what I call a, a fractal hierarchy of money um, that will that will span from sort of the local money to global money and, and back. And again, I can't pretend to know exactly what that's all going to look like, but I think these themes of, of municipal sovereignty, of um, you know, this sort of monetary revolution we're undergoing in cryptocurrencies and the ability of these new primitives like AMMs, automated market makers and bonding curves to actually, um, you know, provide new approaches to macroeconomics and to, you know, uh, bridging these different, uh, let's say, currency regions together is sort of unexplored territory with a lot of a lot of potential. So that's sort of what I'm looking forward to. And, and the, you know, sort of longer term vision of Cosmos that has really kept me super motivated is really this this model of of localism, of empowering smaller local communities, of, you know, being able to to you know, better isolate or not isolate is not the right word, but protect communities from large scale global financial fluctuations, right? To, to not have some little bank failing over here cause a massive cascade across the financial system that causes all these people in unrelated rural communities to lose their jobs, right? Um, so, so building a sort of more sustainable, anti-fragile uh, ecosystem of economies rather than this one highly coupled, highly fragile global system. Um, that's really what, what, what I'm working towards. And I think what the what the Cosmos project and vision is really about. It's a really interesting, it's a really different view, I would say on the current state of the world, because right now, you know, the internet basically opened up and travel of course, but internet in particular really opened up uh, the world to everybody. 
And so I think, you know, what you're, to me, what you're kind of suggesting is that maybe there's a better way to actually bring some of that back so that we do have a bit more, almost a return to tribalism, sort of, because I think we, we do have almost that happening already in the cryptocurrency space and even on the internet as a whole. You have your, you know, tribes or subreddits that you maybe subscribe to, of people that you kind of agree with or have a particular view on or a particular interest in, you know, lots of people in their communities and even in, in there's still existing places where they legitimately have, you know, a tribal community where it's you know, 100 people or 150 people, 200 people. And I think there's, um, uh, I forget the study, but there was something basically that I read that you really as a person can really only have a certain level of meaningful connections. Sure. Where before um, the level of human connection starts to degrade over time because of the anonymity or because you haven't built a bond with somebody. And I think that for, I remember it was somewhere in the 150 to 200 person range or 100 to 200 people. Account, and right? I think, yeah. I think that, you know, it's really interesting to be able to take that concept that hasn't been able like to scale basically because of physical and because of the barriers around money and being able to do commerce is really clunky. And, you know, because people have tried local currencies Sure. But then now I think you're right with some of these technologies that have emerged, it could be possible to take that same concept, but then scale it to be able to be interoperable around the world. And so I think, um, you know, I, I remember when you first told me this, I was like, this guy's, this guy's crazy. Like, <laughs> I don't think this makes any sense. Um, but we've come around more. I think COVID has actually highlighted some of this, like you mentioned, yeah. But I think even, you know, it's interesting, the more that I've dug into this idea, it, it could work. I mean, I think there's lots of barriers, sure. lots of challenges, but I think it, it could work. I mean, we're, you know, I'm in Calgary, for example, you're in Toronto, I believe, Waterloo area. Right. Um, and we, in Calgary, we've had a Calgary coin for a long time. Sure. Nobody, nobody uses it. Right. Part of that's because of the tooling and like acceptance, yeah. you know, there's those network effects that need to be built up as well as the ease of use. But I think a lot of, you know, we've seen experiments even recently where people were doing local stimulus uh, amid the COVID yeah. um, pandemic to try and encourage people to shop locally or be able to spend. And so I think there are sentiments moving that direction. It's just, it'll be interesting to see how some of this stuff plays out over the next bit. How do you think kind of leading into that, how, I mean, what do you think is sort of required? And I guess one of the questions that I've kind of had is like super cool idea. If, if people can basically make their own currency and run, you know, program their own values into their own networks and then have them interoperate. And even, you know, maybe even you have a floating like open market exchange rate for, you know, Calgary coin versus Toronto coin, for example, or, you know, Mumbai or, you know, uh, Rio, like you could have these different things based on all, almost taking it one layer lower. But do you think that's actually, I guess, viable? Or how do you think that something like that may happen? Because I know you've been doing a lot of research into the history of banking and you know, community banking and some of the challenges around um, our current 
I guess, structural financial system and the, the challenges there? How do you, how do you kind of see these things? What, I guess, first off, what's the problems that you're seeing with our existing structure? Like, why is it no good other than the fact that you could have these cascading effects? Like, wouldn't this make it worse? And if not, why not? Maybe you can dive into a little bit of that. So, you know, I should hedge all this by saying I'm a, I'm a complete amateur economist, so I have no economic credentials. And, you know, uh, these are most of my, most of this comes from my biophysical intuitions, let's say, right, from studying ecosystems and, and organisms and uh, my understanding of what sustainability means and the organism as the sort of quintessential sustainable system, right? And to me, sustainability, my understanding of sustainability and what it means to be sustainable is that you have... Um, a system is sustainable if it has an internal model of its environment that it can use to actually adapt, right? So there's this sort of representational function that an organism has to have that internally within the organism, it has to do a good job of representing the kinds of patterns and changes in its environment so that it can respond to that, right? And, and so I, I like to use the model of like, you know, a hurricane, uh, which is something that doesn't represent its environment, right? It just it's this emergent structure, it's very beautiful, but it just runs down, right? And when it crashes into land, it's sort of over, right? It, and it leaves a lot of destruction in its path. And, and so I sort of believe that the way we've structured our economy, this sort of pursuit of infinite growth and just like all we care about is, is GDP, um, you know, it fails to actually within the structure of the economy and especially within the structure of money, it fails to actually represent uh, the environment that we're that we're embedded in, the ecological environment and, and even the social environment and the key things that actually sustain us, right? And so we're a lot like the hurricane, you know, maybe our economy is this sort of beautiful emergent hurricane-like structure, but because it fails to represent its boundaries, it's just going to crash into them and, and burn, right? And that's sort of the path our, our uh, e economies are, are headed on. And so, you know, at, at some level, I'm, you know, trying to understand how, how we can correct that, but then there's this sort of deeper uh, maybe not deeper, but this this other component, which is like the structure of our monetary institutions and just how much they have contributed to inequality in the world through the sort of you know pathway that money takes to getting in to getting created and then distributed, right? And 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 the sort of totally. um, you know starting at the at the central banks and then being distributed to the sort of you know dealers at the banks and so on and trickles down and mostly has just led to you know trickles down, but has mostly led to like you know financial asset bubbles. Um, and doesn't actually seem to get into the hands of people and levels of inequality are just, you know, uh, growing rampantly. And so obviously there's there's many reasons for this, but one does seem to be the sort of, you know, current structure of, of our monetary systems. And so, you know, how, how do we actually address this? How can we build real local economic systems that can fix things like this or, or start to chip away at them? I mean, you look at a lot of these community currencies, like the Calgary dollar, whatever, the Toronto dollar, the Toronto dollar failed. I don't think it's around anymore. And they're, you know, they're largely gimmicks. They're like toys. They're like, oh, look, like we can do something nice. And like, yeah, it's nice, but um, is it, is it really going to make a difference? And, and, and those kinds of things where you sort of, you know, you, you buy the Calgary dollar for a dollar and the dollar sits in a bank and someone will redeem it later for 95 cents or whatever, like, that's not really the model I'm, I'm championing here. I think those are nice. And, and, and there's a lot of potential for those things. I'm more so the things I've been quite inspired by recently um, are mutual credit systems and uh, more generally liquidity saving mechanisms, which are liquidity saving is something that's well understood by financial institutions, right? At the end of every day, all the banks get together at a clearinghouse uh, and they and they net out all the payments between each other so that the amount of cash that each one has to come up with to sort of settle their balances on, you know, at the end of the day is minimal compared to the net compared to the gross flows, right? Um, but these kinds of clearing operations aren't 
accessible to, you know, they save the banks maybe trillions of dollars a year in actually in actual liquidity requirements. So the savings don't get passed on to exactly. They're not accessible to the average business, right? So imagine yeah. there were there were um, clearing houses for uh, uh, for you know networks of businesses that are all doing business with each other. I mean, if I owe you and, and you owe some other guy and and, and they owe me, we can clear yeah. that without any of us having to come up with any money just by surfacing the information about the fact that there, hey, there's a closed loop between us. And these kinds of closed loop, these, these flows are at the heart of sustainable systems, right? They are, you know, representations of a kind of pattern of activity that, you know, if, if you recognize them as such, can actually be made to be sustainable, essentially, right? Uh, because you don't have to come up with new inflows to support them. You can just sort of clear them and, and, and sort of keep them, um, keep them going. And so, you know, the, the, the sort of at the heart of what I'm aspiring for or what I'm proposing or, or you know, uh, pushing is, is this idea that just by servicing information about uh, local flows in, in economies and, and these kinds of local loops, we could actually save small businesses huge amounts of liquidity, which, you know, directly affects their bottom line because no longer do they have to come up with the cash, they can just clear it with, with each other. And that by doing that, we can start to actually grow those kinds of loops, right? And and that and thereby sort of compound wealth and value in local economies by strengthening the sets of flows and you know and, and thus the local supply chain and so on. And so there was you know there's a there's there's a number of examples of you know relatively successful mutual credit kinds of systems like this. So there's the the Veer Bank in, in Switzerland, which emerged after the Great Depression in the 30s, and a lot of community currency showed up after. You know, when, when there's a, a serious credit crunch and liquidity disappears, you know, there's still lots of goods and services. There's still people that need things, people that offer things, but the medium of exchange is gone, right? And so what do people do is they start issuing script, they issue other media of exchange, right? And are they barter or they or they uh, borrow other mediums of exchange? I think we're seeing this play out in real time in Venezuela right now, right? For the most part, people are using US dollars to, to transact as much as they can because nobody right. wants to hold the devaluing currency. It's a right. game of hot potato, basically. Right. But in, in the case of the 30s, you know, it was the U.S. dollar that had a liquidity right. crisis, right? No one could even come up with U.S. dollars. And so there were all these community currencies that emerged and most of them got stamped out because the central banks were like, no, we don't we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, but the Veer Bank got away, got around it by just incorporating as a bank. Right. And so they're a, a mutual credit system that, that's probably the longest lasting and the largest example of a complementary current system that, you know, there, there, there's some research that shows that it actually has a meaningful impact on uh, stabilizing the Swiss economy, especially during liquidity crises or, or, or larger sort of credit crunches, right? And 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 so there was a paper also earlier this year on liquidity saving mechanisms um, that that studied uh, the Sardex mutual credit system, which has emerged in in, in Sardinia, um, but also a a credit a trade credit clearing system in um, in Slovenia that's operated for you know for a few decades that allows small businesses essentially in Slovenia that trade with each other to clear. Uh, to clear their credit, right? So essentially saving their liquidity. And what this paper showed is that if you were to combine these two mechanisms of this sort of trade clearing plus mutual credit for a network of small businesses, you can save them up to 50%, 50% of their what? liquidity really? requirement. That's effectively like cutting your costs or expenses yeah. in half just by servicing the information about who you're who you're trading with, right? So you know, for me, the problem with our monetary systems is they don't is they don't actually surface this kind of information. It's very centralized, abstracted, high level. Like, oh, the central bank, yeah. we can tweak interest rates and like you know print money and give it to banks, and then they'll lend it out, and that's the you know our representation of the economy. That is, you know, maybe that worked in the you know 19th century or something, or partially in the 20th century, but society today is way too complex for that. 
And I think we really need to have these more local mechanisms, these more local, you know, you don't even need to create a new medium of exchange to do this kind of clearing, right? You just, you just do the clearing and the debts are cleared and that's that. And that, that, that carries a function of money, but it's not sort of, you know, its own money, but you can build monies on top of that, right? Um, and that's where, that's the direction I think can be, uh, that has the most promise for actually getting the ball rolling where you can set up these sorts of, you know, uh, business cooperatives, essentially cooperative between many businesses that, that do business with each other that, you know, enforce these sort of local supply chains and enable them to save potentially huge amounts of liquidity just by servicing the, you know, the information about these closed flows. And even if it takes, you know, 50 businesses to close the loop, there's still a loop and you can still recognize that, you know, and that's the, that's the sort of the stuff of sustainable economy. So, um, that's the kind of thing I'm really excited about. And we see there's a, there's a project in, um, in Kenya that it's called grassroots economics that have sort of been doing this. They built a mutual credit system out there that, you know, they've been operating since long before blockchains came around, but now they've been leveraging the sort of digital currency technology and, you know, bonding curves and, and so on to, to facilitate this. And they have like tens of thousands of small businesses doing this, you know, engaging in this kind of, um, commerce. And, and so that's the kind of model I think has a lot of potential. And, you know, I'm not advocating that this is a replacement per se for central banks or that we're competing with them or that, you know, they're all evil. Like there's a lot of malice, I would say, at maybe somewhere in the history, but I think a lot of bankers today, and, you know, gained actually quite a bit of uh, respect for the institutions of banking and, you know, what they're, you know, what they're actually trying to, trying to solve compared to where I was say 10 years ago when I was buying, you know, physical silver. <laughs> but the thing for me is I think we can actually build a better foundation for national currencies by sort of connecting them to these webs of, of local, local currencies. And so we can sort of build up the structure of a national currency from as a representation of, you know, these more local uh, media of exchange or, or, you know, credit clearing systems and so on. So that's sort of, you know, yeah. what I'm working towards. And I don't, surely don't have it all figured out. I think there's, there's tons of research that needs to be done. We need to sort of revive the field of, you know, optimum currency areas. And, you know, I think a lot of people just kind of concluded, oh, the optimum currency area is the whole world. And so, you know, everyone should just use the US dollar, but like, you know, that's not, I don't think that's good. So. No, I think the, you know, with every experimentation, you, you end up learning, right. You end up having some some byproduct or some side effect that you didn't wasn't expected, but that's part of progress. I it's man, it's it's been a bit since we chatted, so it's really interesting because we've been thinking about very similar things, but from afar. Um, and I think you know you're totally right. I mean, this is actually one of the things that we've been working towards at Bedali too. Is that coming from a different area? You know, we started off doing stuff in the the gift card space. So I mean bring back to what we were doing, the initial idea was, look, we think that the future of money is going to be crypto in some form because it's just, it's just better. Like overall, more secure, more auditable, easier to move around, all these things. It's just better. But how to, how you realize that vision is you need, you know, stability, you needed a bunch of the infrastructure to be able to exchange currencies, you need the ability to um, send and receive it easily and accept it as a payment. And so I think right now we're at this inflection point where, you know, people have been able to accept payments in Bitcoin and other things for a decade now. Um, but usually the question is, is like, well, how do I actually take the value that I've received and use it to, you know, as a business, like pay my employees or um, pay for my rent or pay for the supplies that I need or pay my supply chain. And, you know, part of that's a, a network effect that needs to be built up by people starting to accept this, but there were barriers to that in terms of tooling 
ease of use, and even stability has been a big barrier. The volatility is not conducive to this. So I think this is where now with, with you know, dollar pegged crypto assets giving us the perceived stability that we've got right now, that makes it a lot more palatable. And that infrastructure, you know, that's basically what we've been building towards over the last while. In order to start to do that, though, we said, okay, you need to be able to spend at places you care about. So we're like, how? what's the easiest way to do that? Well, we could enable people to buy gift cards. And as a result, this was two years ago, it was like a prototype or three years ago now. But we recognize that even within the gift card space that, especially over the last year, I was like, wait, these are just mutual credit systems. What if you could actually swap like Amazon dollar for Walmart or like a local currency for Amazon and like, you know, basically make all these things interoperable, you could enable uh, these mutual credit systems, which would save, as you mentioned, I didn't know it was as high as 50%. I had seen that paper, but hadn't been, had a chance to read it yet. And I mean, even what we identified is like, look, at a minimum, you'd be able to save people, you know, 10 to 15% and be able to actually pass those savings on to a consumer, a business would. But the other side that we recognize too, is that this mechanism of issuing credit as a business is not that dissimilar from what a central bank does, right? But the problem, as you kind of highlighted, and what we had actually been thinking about and kind of working, talking with different governments about is inverting the flow of funds, which is a huge structural shift. But right now, as a result of the COVID pandemic, I mean, even I'll use Canada as an example, we had a bunch of fiscal stimulus go in that goes central bank to commercial bank to business and end user. And once the government issues that credit to the commercial banks, they lose visibility into where this stuff goes. And as a result, there's a bunch of fraud, there's a bunch of um, you know, poor or mismanaged distribution. Let's say it worked out pretty well considering, but um, you know, not definitely not great. And what we were thinking is like, what if you can actually invert the flow by basically flattening this uh, architecture? And I think that's very similar to what you're proposing, where it's, you know, instead of going central bank to commercial bank to end, you know, end consumer business, going the other way and enabling consumers or businesses to then redeem these at commercial banks. So inverting the flow, but then that makes it way more efficient for distributing funds and you're never going to get rid of fraud entirely but it, i think because of this technology you have much more visibility into the distribution and as a result that can then seed things for creating uh, a more bottoms up mutual credit system but without completely you know tearing everything to pieces and disrupting it so we've actually been working on some of this stuff uh concepts and we're hoping to be able to prove it out with the bermuda government um, you know, over the next year or two, because one of the things that they've, you know, we've been working with them for about a year now. And one of the towards, um, because they don't have a central bank. So one of the challenges that they have is that they can't even just go and issue stimulus as easily. Um, and they're a small nation. So the ability for them to create a community currency is actually, you know, they already have a Bermuda dollar, which is pegged to the US dollar. But to be able to create a truly uh, community currency, I think, is much more feasible there, as well as there's political, you know, buying premier uh, 
David Burt uh, is super progressive in thinking about the space and seeing where it's going. But I think the, to me, the challenge that we've had to date around some of this is that, you know, to your point about surfacing that information, um, we have the internet of information, right? So right now there's an asymmetry where information travels much, much faster than value can transfer, right? And around the world. And I think that's why as we become more globally connected, you end up having much larger ripple effects on one corner of the planet affect somewhere else because the information shifts much faster than the value can adapt, the value chains can adapt. And I think that's the really interesting thing about what you are talking about is how you can actually bring that up to par so that information and value can transfer at relatively the same speed in terms of leveling things out. So I think, I think yeah, it's, it's fascinating catching up and hearing, you know, thinking about similar things, but coming from a slightly different perspective. I definitely think there's something there and that's something that we're working towards as well is, you know, trying to test out some of these ideas because at the end of the day, they haven't really been done before. This is all new stuff. So I think with that in mind, thank you for joining me on Real Vision. Thank you for all the work that you've been doing and the thinking about this space. I'm excited to see what you guys do at uh, Informal Systems and where the ecosystem is going with Cosmos. I think the uh, recent IBC or inter-blockchain communication launch is going to be pretty critical both for the Cosmos ecosystem as well as the space as a whole. So we'll get to see some of these experiments kind of play out. For sure. Yeah. And we have, you know, the, the Cosmos blockchain, the Cosmos hub blockchain is sort of one of the first of many Cosmos blockchains. And now there's, you know, Terra and Binance and, and crypto.com and, and many others. We're sort of looking at that as a, uh, you know, we call it a, a port city into the sort of larger ecosystem, right? A, a way to connect in and it's being designed as a chain to really service the needs of all the other blockchains, um, but also to help start to think about stitching together, you know, all these different local monies into a more coherent system. And so I, having IBC at the heart of it as this interoperability protocol to get, to sort of get that started in a somewhat coherent way um, is, uh, you know, is really exciting for us. And, you know, we've got the this, this DEX that's going to be launching on the Cosmos Hub, hopefully in, in the next month or so, that will start to unlock the ability to you know, trade all these different currencies um, you know, without having to go on to centralized exchanges and, and worry about the custody risk and so on, but we'll also open up new opportunities for experimenting with, with economic design and with monetary design. And that's really, um, you know, I'm really excited about, uh, about that, about the future of the Cosmos Hub and the larger ecosystem and uh, yeah, monetary localism in general, so. It's fascinating. It's, I mean, it's going to be really exciting, I think, to see what happens over the next year or two, even um, even projecting five years out. I mean, I think right now we're at a state where nobody really knows and truly where the world's going, um, both on a political side as well as the, the financial side. I think the general consensus is it's not going the way everybody had hoped or planned. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if this ends up transitioning into a different way that we operate both locally and globally. So for sure. Yeah. A uh, pleasure as always, Ethan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for having me. See you. Welcome to the end of the video. 
We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com.